for August 19th, 2013. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 268. There's always Event Horizon. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matthew Rather, here with the panel to do listener feedback. Yes, the day has arrived long ago. A prophecy foretold that a podcast would have listeners who would write things and leave messages and text the podcast, and they would answer uh, on the phone. So we will get to that. But before we do, panel, your question this week, uh, your pop culture-related question, um, you may not know that there has been a controversy uh, brewing today, this very day, uh, Sunday, the 18th of August, as we record, um, 2013. Apparently, Perez Hilton... Uh, the the gossip blogger known as uh, known as Perez Hilton, who writes under that nom de blog, uh, was spotted at Lady Gaga's New York apartment. Um, is that accurate? Is that does that comport with your? Will you stipulate to that, counselor? Uh, he was he was he's seen in the apartment building in the in Lady Gaga's uh, apartment building in in New York. Yeah, sorry, not spotted. in her, not like in her apartment. That that yeah, was no, exactly. But, uh, like like fans of Lady Gaga who are passersby or knew her personally spotted him there, tweeted to her to let her know what was happening, and then events cascaded and <laughs> forward from there. So uh, Lady Gaga tweeted uh, eight hours ago as we as we record this. Do I need to be shot? And this is actually all in caps with uh, with only one punctuation mark. Uh, which is a question mark uh, towards the end of the tweet. So she tweeted this. Do I need to be shot in the head for people to understand that him and everyone else that harasses me has gone too far? Now a question mark. I'm a human being, she said. This was her response, I guess, to seeing seeing Perez Hilton up there. she, she uh, went on uh, to tweet later on, I just want to make music plus make people smile. I'm sorry to all the fans who are trying to enjoy what's supposed to be a happy time, period, gone too far. And then uh, finally, uh, recently, within the hour, the hour, she tweeted, I will not, uh, and that, that uh, extra vocal stress um, indicates capital Letters. I will not handle this privately. The internet is just the surface of what the public sees. I've been quiet for a long time. Not this time. So apparently uh, Lady Gaga calling Perez Hilton out for being at her apartment, uh, uh, apartment building. And uh, so Perez Hilton fired back a few hours ago uh, with a blog post entitled, A Statement on Lady Gaga's Lies. Just like so legalistic, right? Uh, Yes, exactly. Uh, So uh, from Perez Hilton, I have long had plans to return to New York City more permanently. New York was my home for six years in the mid-90s before I moved to Los Angeles. I also lived here for three months last year while doing an off-Broadway show. I'm a new father... And I'm primarily focused on my family and where we will be most happy. I love New York. And that's uh, where me and my growing family want to call home right now. So clearly uh, in the grammar department, neither uh, Perez Hilton nor Lady Gaga has taken the high road. Uh, 
Sunday, my realtor showed us a list of possible apartments to rent. I learned only after the fact that Lady Gaga lives in one of the buildings we looked at, and she was across the country in Los Angeles when I viewed that building. Uh, after a day of innocent house hunting, <laughs> I am devastated and my heart hurts that my former very good friend, a person I used to call my wifey and traveled the world with, is making public and untrue allegations about me on Twitter. Um... So anyway, Look, New York real estate is never innocent. Right? <laughs> so, uh, so panel, I, sorry to, to go on such a long digression, but I feel like not everybody may be up on the latest uh, Perez Hilton, uh, Lady Gaga drama. Um, so the uh, <laughs> and you know that that's what our podcast exists to provide you. Well, with. right, absolutely. So I'm glad. I mean, it's important to take time to to provide background on the you know relevant works. Um, I feel like you're trivializing Lady Gaga's legitimate sense of alarm and frustration with people getting all up in her grill. Yeah. Even wait, 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 wait. Is- no, I mean, I mean, I want to I want to talk about this because like this 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 all. Um, it's predicated on the idea that there's a difference between uh, Lady Gaga and Perez Hilton, and I, I want to, I, I want to at least challenge that that notion. But but first, your question, panel, um, uh, who's who's uh, pick a celebrity whose apartment building you'd like to move into? <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Not not in a creepy way, of course. Just in 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 uh, way of innocent house hunting. Uh, first in the alphabet, drink because it's not Pete Fenzel. It is Matthew Belinky. It's great to have you, sir. Uh, it's great to be here. So I, this one's easy for me because you live in an apartment building with somebody, and I, I sure you could have a dream that you're gonna get to know them casually while picking up the mail and gradually sort of uh, become part of their inner circle. And eventually you'll, you'll go from being sort of like somebody who lives on in the same building to somebody who gets invited to like all the parties and is actually like part of a, a legitimate friend. But that's probably not going to happen. Like, like the, the limit of your interaction is going to be sort of these casual happenstance meetings in the elevator, uh, you know, with the exercise room, uh, you know, picking up the mail, that kind of a thing. But there is one celebrity for whom those interactions Actions are the the sum total of his his fame and and his oeuvre, and that of course is Larry David. So <laughs> I would very much like to live in a building with Larry David because like I feel like all I'd have to do is be like mildly odd, and I can basically six months later sort of see my interactions on TV. That like when I'm in the elevator, all I got to do is face the wrong direction, right? I don't look towards the door; I just look towards the back of the elevator. And then just like wait and see see the repercussions of that. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I have a picture of this interaction happening, and Larry David just looking at you and with a very kind of cutting tone saying, "I judge your performance to be insufficiently improvised, and you never make the show." <laughs> <laughs> But then that see see that what I hope happens is that there's a there's a curb your enthusiasm plotline about people just like trying to act up around Larry David specifically so that they can become inspiration for like Larry David plotlines and it sort of goes it goes meta it goes through the looky glass. Sure, sure. So that like also actors on the show are also doing this thing, right? Right, we're like we're like everybody. Everybody on the show, like it becomes well. It's it's interesting. The the Larry David case is an interesting one because the, when it, when the show first started, it really did sort of mimic his own life. That he was this guy. He was sort of living off the fame of Seinfeld. He didn't really have any projects going on in the meantime, and it's it's diverged in interesting ways. And and to me, sort of the point where sort of our universe splits off from the Larry David verse, and in interesting ways, where he, he got he got. Um, divorced from his wife 
in real life and on the show. And then it was, and I found it kind of touching that then on the show, an entire season, if if not more than one season, is sort of dedicated to his his desperate attempts to get back together with her. Um, most notably by staging a Seinfeld reunion as a means to get her a part, like a high profile part, because she's trying to be an actress. Uh, that that then she'll be extremely grateful to him. It, it became a show that was sort of like about mirroring what happens to him in real life to sort of like, you know, fan fiction for himself, right? That, hmm. uh, that he, he became his own, what was it, a Mary Sue? Is what you like <laughs> yourself which, fan fiction were, like what you hold. Which, if you were to ask me, what's the sort of like self-aggrandizing indulgence that a person with, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to spend and not a lot of tact would invest in themselves... A sort of live action Mary Sue only available on HBO would be like second or third on the list. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's first on the list? Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, okay. we, yeah, we don't have that kind of budget, I'm afraid. Uh, but Something. you know what? You know what we do have? Peter Fenzel. Hey, how's it going, man? I'm good. How are you? Doing good, doing hey, hey, good. Can yeah. I say? Can I? Can I mention the 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 good news? The celebration. Oh, I mean, yeah, sure. That that so. re- recently we we you know the world by uh, I, by we I mean the world celebrated the birth of Peter Fenzel. <laughs> yes, it was last Thursday, and it was very fun. Thank you very much. I appreciated it. <laughs> Definitely. So thanks. Um, but yeah, but on to living spaces for celebrities. <laughs> They'll jump that right right through. Um, so I'd like to pick sort of based on the celebrity lives there, but also I want to think, okay, what celebrity is likely to live in an apartment that has the qualities that I want in an apartment? Right? So I want an apartment that's big, right? It should be spacious, with high ceilings, it should have good light. I like to live in an urban, like a big city. I like cities. They're good. Maybe by the water, like a nice ocean view would be good. Uh, and so with that all in mind, I'm going to say Gypsy Danger is the celebrity who's a part of the, uh, the, the protagonistical mecca in the movie Pacific Rim, the giant robot, <laughs> which no, who now lives in a giant converted loft space in a, now an artist neighborhood that used to be a, uh, an industrial robot manufacturing neighborhood, and now it's home really to multiple high ceilings. Exactly, exactly. You're going to walk out and go past like the, uh, the robot oxyacetylene torching stations to go to the artisanal <laughs> like, German bakery and pick up like some schnitzels before uh, – is that a bakery thing? Oh, man, I should know. Is that a sausage thing? I don't even know off the top of my head. Strudels would be a bakery thing. But yeah, yeah totally. So, so you're doing this based entirely on getting your mail, Peter Fenzel, care of the Shatterdome. <laughs> exactly. I want to live in the Shatter Dome. Exactly. Why Attention. Is it called the Shatter. It's it's not a dome, as far as I can tell. And really, it it's not to shatter. No, but it, no, it's I, designed not. That's the last thing you want to happen there. Right, 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 right. Like the techno drone. I don't even know what a drone is. But it's clearly techno, though. Like it's it's definitely got the technology well, the te- going. The technodrome can be anywhere. It has wheels. Remember? Yeah. Now, are all of the robot docking stations called shatter domes, or is only the one in Hong Kong a shatter dome? I figured. I figured just the one. I figured all of them had those sort of vaguely, you know, Ed Hardy plus you know Gundam inspired <laughs> things to them. <laughs> 
Because I was thinking of getting a Shatter Dome to tear in a city that I'll holiday in, you know? Like, just uh, <laughs> if I, I want to go to, like, the Riviera, I can get, like, a second Shatter Dome that's on the med. <laughs> just <laughs> go up to Monaco and, and go ride in, like, giant robot transforming cars around Le Mans or what have you. You know where I'm imagining you? Uh, that, am I just making this up that Idris Elba in the movie has an office or an apartment or, or something that has a stream running through it? <laughs> like, didn't that happen? That like, there's a scene where he's sort of dressing down the two pilots after they almost blow up the shattered, and and they're like in there, and there's like a there's like a beautiful stream that's sort of running down the middle. I remember that. Yeah, it's either running through it. It's either running through it or like in the background or something. It's like it's it's definitely a feature. Yeah. It's like you know, in this highly utilitarian, you know, rivets and gears, and like every door is open with like this hydraulic wheel turning. Someone designed this. Said like, you know, the the CEO's quarters. Let's just let's just run a, a dappling stream through there. Let's put a toy <laughs> pond in there. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, those that is the uh, that is the the dulcet. Those are the dulcet tones. That is the chocolatey baritone of John Parrish. Um, hey, John, what celebrity uh, are you gonna move in with? What up? So again, I, I want to take I want to take Blinky's tone that you know. Obviously, you're, you're not going to instantly become friends with them, although I suppose it would be easier if you know if you have to do things like occasionally open the door for them while they're letting their dog in or out. But uh, chiefly, uh, chiefly the, the benefit of moving in with them is taking advantage of whatever accoutrement that they, as a celebrity, have uh, installed or added to the, uh, the apartment, the living space. So obviously, with that in mind, I'd like to become neighbors with uh, Sir Stephen Hawking. Because you know that the you know that the elevator in his in his unit has to be like really spacious and like really, <laughs> like really comfortable. Like it's got to be able to like move and turn around, or it's got to have enough space for the the wheelchair to enter and turn around and everything. And like you know how hard it is to get a you know a nice a nice building with with that sort of elevator space in it. It's it's tricky. Nice. Uh, I mean, do you, do you want to run into Sir Stephen in the? I'm, I'm assuming he's been knighted uh, to, to Professor Hawking. I will say, do you want to do you, do you want to run into him and in the thing? What are you What are you going to talk about when you uh, when you're getting your mail uh, from the you know from the downstairs from the mailroom? I worry that that would be awkward, just because, and not to not to make fun of you know the the handicap with, with which he has suffered for you know pretty much my entire life, uh, you know, thirty years at least, but. I get the impression he doesn't talk a lot extemporaneously because it, you know, it sort of takes him a while to, to, you know, string a sentence together. So I think it would be a really awkward elevator ride if we happen to bump into, especially because the spacious elevator, which is the whole reason of moving in the first place, would be like really cramped all of a sudden because he'd be in it. So that would be a very, that'd be very Larry David-esque. Like, can you imagine Larry David and Stephen Hawking in the same elevator, just riding down very slowly and Larry David sort of like staring at his thumbs and like wondering what exactly he should say to one of the preeminent, you know, physics geniuses of our time. And Sir Stephen Hawking just sort of sitting there and like really slow descend and like awkwardly trying to jostle around so that he can let, you know, Sir Hawking out. But, you know, it's, it's not quite right. So he has to, that would be awesome. He totally would complain about the tone of his voice. Like he said, <laughs> he, he just said hello. And it just, it felt, it felt like a brush off. It felt it's like what in his tone, it was his tone. It just, it wasn't it's like, he's a, it, sa- it sounds the same. No, no, no. I, I know, I know it all sounds the same, but if you were there, you could tell if you Larry, were there, Larry, the man is handicapped, Larry, like 
for, you know, give, cut him some slack. The, right, the rest of it writes itself, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, let's do this. We're writing our Curb Your Enthusiasm fanfic. Uh, <laughs> and it's nice. just it, does the elevator stop does Steve, does larry larry david get stuck in an elevator with stephen hawking stephen for like 45 hawking. minutes yeah i think i think that's a little too i think that's a little too pat i think just the okay. ride down itself would be sufficient right and then just a conversation after the fact and then like he has to go apologize even though he didn't say anything offensive or something like that awesome it all goes terribly wrong <laughs> uh jordan stokes next in the alphabet I find it funny that basically everyone has made their choices based on the kind of apartment that they would get. And, like, <laughs> we all are quite comfortable with the fact that we will never befriend a celebrity. Uh, but I, I am also doing that, you know. I, I, that's what I planned out, and I'm at the end of the, li- the, uh, the <laughs> alphabet. And uh, I see no reason to change. So, the Queen of England, because I have seen Buckingham Palace, and it is nice. <laughs> <laughs> Does nice. she have multiple apartments though? Does she have like different? Do you have to specify which one of the buildings that she potentially lives in? Like you could end up in the Isle of Man or something, and it wouldn't be a I great think, situation. I think if I don't specify, then I get apartments in all of them, which is pretty sweet. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, I want to go the, Brown if Stokes you, if Dominion. That, if you leave that line on the lease blank, it's like, oh, we forgot to fill that in, so you get thirty apartments. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, literally, right? Like, apartment. Apartment is. Uh, it's a private room. It's a word from the 17th century, says the internet. Says my friend Google. Uh, and mm. private rooms for the use of one person within a house. So, like, you know, so uh, uh, in Europe, where it's more the norm that like a uh, an extended family will will stay together, uh, both I imagine because of the cost of real estate and because um, they don't tend to buy things uh, with borrowed money. Quite in the same way that that we do in the states, don't tend to buy houses anyway. Uh, that way, like a, a young married couple will move in with with one of their one of their parents, and they will have uh, an apartment. They'll have you know a suite of rooms that's alone in the in the you know family house, right? So uh, it's uh, from from Latin uh, the Latin word apartere, which means to separate. Um, and the you know like uh, literally to divide into parts to to put into parts. So an apartment uh, it comes through French, right? So an apartment is uh, appartement is right like uh, a an apportionment or a, a a division within a within a larger house. So yeah, I suppose the queen has uh, has an apartment within within the palace, right? Although, you know, based on the palace tours that I've been on, I think they tend to call them quarters when you're talking about monarchy. Yeah. So I may need to, uh, to rethink my entire answer. Uh, okay. Looking at the Wikipedia page of the list of British royal residences, I recommend checking out the Palace of Holyrood House in Edinburgh, which is an official <laughs> Scottish residence of the Queen. It's either Holyrood House or Holyrood House, and that's a pretty cool. She also has Sandringham House, Balmoral Castle, Craigowen Lodge, Delna, Delna Damp Lodge. Lodge in Balmoral, Aberdeenshire, as well as Buckingham Palace and Windsor Come Castle. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the Overthinking It podcast where we read silly place names. <laughs> Cockfosters. <laughs> um, oh, God, it's my turn. God, I haven't even, uh, I haven't even thought of one. Um, I, I'm going to go with Perez Hilton because you know what? He deserves it. Team Gaga! 
<laughs> Team Gaga. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we we're the get... little monsters. We're a monster, monster cast today, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, what is the new single? The new single is called Applause, isn't it? I haven't heard it. I must confess. <laughs> um, we're really enthusiastic Lady Gaga fans who never listened to her music. <laughs> Not that we don't like it. But... I like the idea of Lady Gaga. I, I, in fact, I more. I'm gonna go more than that. I respect the idea of Lady Gaga. Yeah. Um, so, uh, hey, wow, that. Uh, <laughs> Like Seinfeld, this is apparently a show about nothing. So let's jump right into the uh, let's jump right into the questions. Um, we got a uh, we got a question from Dan C. Dan C. Uh, writes in from, and I'm so glad this tradition has survived, even though we've pretty much neglected uh, all listener feedback uh, for a while now. Um, oh, uh, sorry, I have things to plug before we get to before we get to Dan uh, to Dan C. Sorry, I forgot. This is the uh, the promotion uh, part right after the question. Um, the uh, the Breaking Bad recap series is in full swing. And uh, uh, Pete, how how did it go? The first one you uh, you mentioned, I think, on the show that I I cannot join uh, for reasons that you you explained on on the recap. So how how was the first Breaking Bad recap? I thought it was great. Yeah, me and John and Shana, we had a great conversation. Uh, really dug down into a lot of the specifics. We had a wonderful conversation about Badger's fictional Star Trek script. So if you're at all familiar with... Uh, Spoilers! <laughs> it, is, it is a throwaway. Don't worry about it. It's not much of a spoiler. But, um, but yeah, if you are caught up, you check it out. And it's, uh, it's, I think it's a fun thing. And getting it in audio as well as in video, I think, is really useful for people. So I'm excited that we're doing that this time around. For yeah, that's, so that's great. We, I mean, it's been, a, it's been a long time request, and there's been kind of some technical setbacks and some, like, hosting and bandwidth and things like this um, uh, hurdles to overcome. But those are all handled. Those are all taken care of. And so now you can get the Breaking Bad uh, recap live as a Google Hangout. And if you want to, uh, if you want to get that, you should uh, follow us or circle us or whatever the, the metaphor is on Google Plus, and you'll get notifications of that. We also uh, uh, Pete tweets them out on the Overthinking at Twitter uh, when we when we start them. Uh, you can watch the YouTube video after the fact uh, because it posts to our YouTube account, and you can get that on the site also. Or you can subscribe to the Recap Podcast feed, and those details will all be in the the post the show notes for that that particular recap so look at the site tomorrow if you want to know about uh how to get the breaking bad recaps and and actually it'll be all of our uh tv recaps because you know they're they're not stopping making tv anytime soon and we're not stopping overthinking it anytime soon so um uh you can get all those details online uh listen the other thing i i want to to plug though it's dangerous to call to call your shot um we're going to be uh, in conjunction with the Ender's Game film that's coming out uh, in in the fall. Um, we are going to be uh, starting a uh, in in line with our Ender Thinking It uh, posts that Ben Adams has been doing. Uh, we're going to do a uh, an audio series that is going to be a book club. Um, I, I uh, Ben Adams, uh, overthinker Ben Adams, is one of the world's foremost experts on uh, Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game, and I have never read it before. And so we're uh, putting it together with with other overthinkers as well, and uh, we're going to do a little book club where we divide the novel into uh, chunks, and we read those chunks and have a uh, have a podcast about each uh, section as we go on and and discuss them and and do uh, listener feedback about. 
about them and, and uh, you know, answer questions and have a discussion about them. It, it'll be like a, a little seminar of all the overthinking, uh, overthinking it, uh, writers and audience together, reading Ender's Game, uh, leading up to the release of the Ender's Game film uh, this fall. So uh, we're going to be starting that soon. There's going to be coming out as a supplement uh, podcast this month, a, uh, a sort of scene setting, a stage setting that will be a, a prolegomenon um, if you will, to uh, any future ender thinking it uh, that uh, that we're going to be starting. So that's that's going to be cool. So get your uh, get your copy of of Ender's Game, dust it off, get ready. We'll we'll uh, when we do the uh, the intro episode, when we do the the scene setting episode, the uh, prolegomenon, we will uh, uh, reveal the divisions so you can start to kind of plan your uh, you know plan your reading. Um, this is something that we've never done before, so I'm really excited about it. Uh, I'm excited to, uh, to get started and I'm excited to read Ender's Game because, because I never have. And, uh, this is the best opportunity I'm going to get. So, uh, that's, that's also coming up and, uh, we wanted you to know about it. Okay. Now listener feedback now on to Dan C, uh, who, um, who gave us his ICBM address, which I'm, I'm, that's a tradition I'm glad has survived. Uh, he is at 42 degrees, 23 minutes, 15 seconds north 71 degrees six minutes zero seconds west uh and he says hello overthinkers i was wondering what your thoughts were on the pixar theory here is a link and it's a link to john negroni's uh blog and and this is not super current it's a couple months old uh july 11th or a month and a half old um that is uh, a grand unified theory of Pixar films, much in the way that our very own John Parrish did a grand unified theory of Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, uh, early on in his illustrious career writing for Overthinking It. So the idea, <laughs> the idea is that every Pixar movie takes place in, in the same notional, uh, notional universe. So what do we think of this? Overthinkers, have you seen this? And, and, uh, and uh, what's your, uh, what are your thoughts about it? I mean, looking through it, one of my first initial thoughts, just sort of looking through his description, is uh, I, there, there are certain things that, are li- that link together the movies that do seem to have some sort of uh, grounding in an aesthetic sensibility that then can sort of be converted into uh, almost like a metaphysics, right? It's like, well, I, I like using symbol in a particular way, and thus the worlds that I portray tend to use the symbol in the same way. Thus, like, if we were to look at... Uh, I guess what, like the tenor for the vehicle of the metaphor, there would be similarities there too. Some of them are just uh, genre conventions, like the idea of animals that are like people and that like talk like people or people turning into animals and stuff like that. It's pretty standard. Um, I, but I, I'm definitely there are themes. I guess I guess the main thing is that like. Uh, uh, there, and I think we ran into a little bit of this when we were discussing the rules in science fiction post two that we ran a couple weeks ago, uh, which I don't think was directly related to this in any way, but uh, addresses some of the same questions. Where um, it, it, there are things that happen in the movie, and there, that, that uh, are, there's a temptation to try to connect them to some sort of um, underlying truth about the place where they're happening. Right? There's this idea that the movie is giving you a window. I guess what, like, it's sort of like a mise en scene phenomenon, right? And it's like okay, there's a real place, and all these things are about that real place, when really the function of it is artistic. Um, and and some, of the, some of the Pixar theory observations feel more like 
this is something that is part of the creative energy of these movies that they all have in common because the same people care about the same things and are working on them. And there's some of them that seem more just sort of like when they take a picture of a UFO, but really it's a picture where like you point at the camera in the sun and it's showing you part of the camera. Right, like it's like a functional aspect of this kind of storytelling. Um, I don't know, that was my reaction to it. I thought it was cool, but I thought that it took some leaps. What do you guys think? Well, how much? I mean, uh, Pixar movies are more alike. I, I guess. I guess your theory allows for this. Pixar movies are more like each other than they are like other animated movies from other companies, right? Well, that's definitely true, and they, they certainly seem to. I mean, they're the cars in all of them, right? The Pizza Express car, which is the very, very basic beginning of all of it, but they do seem to share an artistic sensibility. They seem to feasibly happen in the same sort of world. Um, I mean, it gets to the point where is this a branded experience or is it like a fictional, is it an imaginary world, right? Is this world building or brand building? Well, what do you, and, I, and so dis- you know, yeah, distinguish, right? be, distinguish between those though, because I'm not sure, uh, just as I'm not sure, like as, as a celebrity, I'm not sure that, you know, really when it comes down to it, there's that much difference between Lady Gaga and uh, Perez Hilton. Uh, I'm not sure there's a great deal of difference between world building and, and brand building, but maybe you can convince me. I mean, sure. I mean, I guess um, the, the example I'm most familiar with in the most detail, uh, which I hope I'll be able to explain enough, is if you think about Magic the Gathering, the cards, if you ever played any of those cards. <laughs> right? like, so when Magic the Gathering first came out in like 1994, uh, there was a lot of crazy crap that was on all the cards, right? Like there were like Shakespeare quotes and like somebody had drawn a dragon and it was like with crayons or something. I mean, it wasn't that bad, but like there were like lots of weird drawings of different styles. There, there wasn't really a coherence to the feeling of all of these things. Um, you know, there would be like a naked dude with a bunch of abstract, like psychedelic stuff swirling around his head, and then there would be like a photorealistic badger, right? It would be like these are existing <laughs> in the same world. Uh, well, they aren't. There, there wasn't the idea that was part of it that they were part of the same world. And then um, you had changes in art direction over the course of the years, like you know, fifteen, ten years, fifteen years in. I, I tend to associate this with the art direction of Jeremy Jervis, I believe was his name, which brought it into this sort of like fantasy realism kind of look that we're all kind of familiar with, right? Where it's like all the anatomies are accentuated, but the lighting is done and through computers and it looks kind of okay. And things, styles started to converge. And so you do have aspects of world building, which are like, this is what goblins look like in this plane, in this set of magic cards, right? And this is what they look like in this one. Um, but you also have ideas of like, okay, if a monster is big, put little birds next to it. That way everyone will know that it's big. And it's like, wow, maybe the little birds have a significance in the worlds that we're building. No, no, no. They're just part of this, the, the way that they're making a, a, a feel, a look and feel of how this product is in your hands, right? That, that you're comfortable with. So you don't look at it and it's like, why is there a naked guy? I don't want to buy this, right? Like, I, I don't know. Maybe it's a soft division, but... I'm not sure, though, that uh, this particular prose piece that we're talking about is really talking so much about aesthetics as it is talking about, um, like plot hooks and unexplained phenomena and images within the movies that specifically refer to other movies within the franchise. So it's, it's a lot more of like the, well, like you said, the pizza truck stuff, right? Yeah, Where yeah. these are things that Pixar is putting in as like fan shout outs that are meant to be kind of fourth wall breaking. Um, and I also think that, although I, I think what you've been saying is super interesting, it kind of misunderstands the kind of uh, essay that this guy is throwing out there. Like, although he 
presents it to you as like, well, look, I figured this out. This is this cool thing that I noticed. I don't think that he really thinks that for a second. I think that anyone with the ingenuity to put together that argument that he's put together realizes that this is, this is silliness and understands why those things are really there. But it, it's taking these, uh, these breaks in the fourth wall and saying like, well, what if we said that there are no breaks in the fourth wall, right? Like, what if we make it all totally diegetic? Can we get something that makes sense out of it? Right. Mm-hmm. It's um, I'm trying to remember. It's like the the Chicago Hope theory, right? Where the point there is not that you actually believe the Saint Elsewhere theory. You mean? Yeah. That, yeah. Right. Yeah. The Chicago Hope theory is that Saint Elsewhere was a much better show. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Which, as anyone knows, is just insane. <laughs> I thought it was that like Hector Elizondo can carry a network television property, yeah. and that theory was disproven uh, by Chicago Hope. Uh, 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 the How many episodes can Mandy Patinkin go without singing? Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, it's here's here's the interesting thing about the the Pixar theory is that I think a lot of the 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 little clever leaps in logic he makes in it about, for instance, how the little girl from Monsters Inc. is actually the same person as the witch from Brave in like medieval Scotland. I mean that that's clever, but it's it's I, I don't think he really believes that. But I think what is true is that Pixar has this this formula they keep going back to, which is sort of the secret life of blank. You know, the secret life of toys, the secret life of bugs, the secret life of, uh, you know, like the monsters that hide in your closet, the secret life of... I mean, car, Cars is different, right? Because Cars is the whole parallel universe. It's not like this is what Cars do when you're not looking. But there is there is a lot of this sort of like this world that you don't know about that's that's hiding underneath the veil of our world. And, and there are films that diverge from it, like Wally diverges from it, Cars diverges well, from it. Um, I don't know that Wally does diverge from it, really. I mean, it, it, it's it takes the secret life of robots... Place. Well, I mean, because Wally is a very functional robot. Wally is one of the few yeah. robots that we actually could go buy in a store. He's basically a Roomba, right? Um, and then he, he falls in love with another robot, and the people are totally unaware. Um, it is, I mean, it's, it's definitely a different take on it, but it's a very similar kind of story. Yeah, it, it is. It is but, interesting. I mean, you know, even like The Incredibles, which is one of the few Pixar films that's about like you know people, uh, is about mm-hmm. you know people that are living you know living the secret life uh, that the normal people aren't really aware of. I mean, now of course, like a lot of movies follow this formula, is that like you know people aren't aware that like you know there's this, there's this other world, there's this whole you know life or death struggle that's going on right beneath the surface. Um, nevertheless, like it does seem like like that sort of like Pixar's go to thing, and I think I think that essay sort of starts out with that that germ of an idea that there's like a, mm-hmm. you know that like maybe rats can talk and really want to be able to cook um sure. and, you know yeah or so can i say that- one other thing uh one other thing that i really like about this essay is um that uh it gives you an explanation for what the heck is going on in cars because yeah. as convoluted as this essay is this is by far the most plausible uh, <laughs> metaphysical explanation for what on earth is going on in the universe of cars yeah one thing that's really amazing about cars putting aside all the sort of technological 
technological wizardry is that they do a whole movie where it's just a universe inhabited by cars and never once in the movie do you stop to say like wait a second nobody has any hands how does anything happen how does anything <laughs> at all in this world work with nobody can can manipulate anything at all and it's like you know you don't you don't realize how many times a day you use your hands until you start thinking about all the things in cars that they had to carefully work around so as not to make it obvious that like you know even something as simple as like opening and closing a door becomes something that like you know you have to you have to very gracefully figure out a way to avoid or to like have the cars do in a way that like doesn't doesn't make it painful uh to watch but it is it is sort of like there's no way that the cars could have like built themselves right uh and i i thought a lot about reproduction in the world of cars probably too much about reproduction in the world of cars Clearly thinking at all about reproduction in the world of cars is thinking too much yeah. about the reproduction in the world. Yeah, of yeah, cars. we wouldn't we wouldn't want to do that on this site. So let's uh, let's move right along. No, what did what did you what did you think about reproduction in the in the world of cars? Well, I mean, here's the thing. I, to my shame, I still haven't seen Cars Two, so I don't know if this is directly addressed. The best I can think of is that when two cars love each other very very much, <laughs> they they place an order at a dealership. <laughs> they they go and they, they order away for a car and I'm actually seeing like a Cars 3 where they, they place an order for a very specific car they're like we want it to be this kind of car we want it to be this color we want it to have these features and another car shows up right and it's a car that they didn't order and a car that doesn't look like them and at first they sort of don't want it but then like who's going to take it if they don't and then they're like gee you know even though this car doesn't look like a race car it actually you know because we're the ones raising it maybe it can become a great racer any- I've got this whole plot for Cars three developed. Wow! Somebody, somebody, call me if you're listening that's, to this. I mean, like that's a, hmm. that's amazing because you know normally the part part of buying a car is uh, negotiating, right? Like uh, you know trying to to get the the dealer down on price and trying to get more options and things like this. And um, I wonder what the the uh, the analog for for progeny is, right? Like what you know? Are you trying to like get a get a baby car for cheaper? And I mean, are the baby cars, do they come out full-sized or do they start as a subcompact, grow into a, a compact, you know, uh, mature into a mid-size and finally end life as a full-sized? Hmm. Is it, it's, it's sort of like <laughs> the opposite of Brave New World, right? Where Brave New World is like, like you know, all, all babies are like grown in a lab and sort of like to order. But that's not the natural way things should be. But if you are, in fact, a machine... This is a sort of mechanized form of reproduction where you where you literally build your kid to order is the natural order of things, um, and that introducing, uh, for lack of a better term, the human element to the process becomes this interesting allegory about these machines that 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 might learn that like introducing some sort of randomization. Uh, and, and, and some, some degree of the unexpected into the process of assembling their progeny at a factory has, has a, a, a sort of beauty to it. Uh, speaking of introducing the human element into the process, our, our next email is from Daniel E. Uh, it is actually, it's, it's not from 2002, like a lot of these uh, listener feedback items that I have on the pile. Uh, are, 2012, but, you mean, or uh, what? T- yeah, 2012, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Long ago, a prophecy was foretold that there would be an overthinking at podcast. You, are you guys really excited for X2? <laughs> like, <whatever. laughs> uh, Daniel E says, what pop culture items do the best job of portraying the thought processes of non-human intelligence? 
intelligences like AIs, uh, aliens, intelligent animals in a way that is that is meaningfully alien. Uh, by this, I mean they behave uh, in a way which is different from. Uh, a human mind behaves uh, a human mind transposed into different forms and contexts, for example, like having emotions, right? Having human emotions. Uh, uh, but maybe the emotions don't resemble anything that we experience um, using metaphors or analogies. that seem nonsensical to us uh, the way that our associations between like red and anger, for example, and, or, you know, higher and better up and better uh, would turn into uh, nonsense outside the context of living as a human being or living on earth or having values and priorities which are different or strange uh, but which we are in, uh, incapable of empathizing with or understanding uh, in terms of existential meaning or purpose, such as that a race of beings which sees no higher goal in existence than the uh, maximization of the number of paper clips in the universe, say. Um, and uh, Daniel E. says, my candidate is the H.P. Lovecraft mythos. I like to think that all those brief glimpses that his protagonists get before going mad are just tiny snapshots of the mundane goings on of the, the uh, Shoggoths and so on, uh, or the end-dimensional equivalent of, go- of going to the supermarket to get some eggs. Also, um, yeah, so that uh, that is from Daniel Ian. There's also another question, but I think we'll take them one at a time. So, uh, uh, pop culture, alien or animal or non-human intelligences that are not just um, Star Trek aliens. So there is one example. Sadly, I don't know if it's exactly pop culture because, A, it's a book. Sorry, Internet. Uh, and, B, it's, it's a book by a very famous author, but it's not his most famous novel by a long stretch, even though, it's, even though a lot of people consider it up there among his best. Uh, the novel in question – hello? Guys, can you hear me? Yeah. Yep. Okay, sorry. Uh, the novel in question is Isaac Asimov's The Gods Themselves. Uh, came out in 1972 and won won several awards in the process. It was originally serialized, and it's about it's about first contact between the human race and a series of aliens who are so weird that they live in a that they live in a completely parallel dimension to uh, to uh, to humans essentially. Like they don't even occupy the same space that we do, and. I, can't, I, I won't really go into detail about the, the plot of the novel, but the, the first it's, – it's divided into three parts. The first part is largely about that first contact and how the humans sort of exploit the relationship between, the, between our dimension and the aliens' dimension to more or less their advantage. But the second part is about the aliens themselves, and it's narrated from the – it's narrated from the point of view of the aliens who – without going into a lot of detail, uh, is, is profoundly alien. Like it's, it's recognizable in so far as it's, you know, as it's written in English by, by a novelist, uh, who's, uh, by a novelist who, you know, can communicate fairly clearly, but the, the priorities and the relationships and everything that are depicted therein are genuinely weird and genuinely alien in a way that I believe was kind of groundbreaking at the time. So, uh, so Isaac Asimov, the gods themselves. Uh, additionally, there are also probably a lot of writers in that sort of sci-fi new wave that came through in the late '60s to maybe late '70s slash early '80s. Uh, probably, probably several examples. I, I can't, 
I can't come up with any off the top of my head. Uh, let you me mean like stranger, big... stranger in a strange land kind of stuff, or uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really call Heinlein new wave necessarily. Well, yeah, but that's also like latter day Asimov too. Like the guys, like the Asimov had like two big fertile creative periods, right? His sort of like earlier, more. St- I mean, he was hugely productive during his whole career, but he had like the more strict fifties ish kind of stuff, and then he, in the seventies he became more into sort of like alternative ways of thinking and yes. new agey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, in the seventies he was. Pr- Primarily doing uh, nonfiction, and this yeah, was a yeah. this was a, a brief detour back into fiction, which was highly critically acclaimed, probably possibly inspired by some of that weird alternative thinking he was doing. Uh, but yeah, so Dan uh, Dan E, this was Dan E, right? Uh, Dan, Dan E, if yes, yeah. If, if you're if you're still listening, I will uh, I will do a little bit of digging and come up with some uh, with some probably books. Again, sorry, internet. And uh, and add them either to the show notes or the comments or or maybe turn them into a post uh, discussing them on their own because this is this is something I've always been interested in as well so it's a it's a good question but I'll turn back over to the the rest of the group too Jordan you you had one uh, also that you were talking about didn't you yeah I have a I have a super interesting uh, example did anyone ever anyone else here play Star Control two no, no, no. Crickets. Okay, so this is it's an old computer game. You can get it for free on an emulator. Um, and it's one of these things that, like, it still holds up very well today. Um, when you look at when it came out, like, the kinds of things that it was trying to do are just astonishing. Um, and it's a actually like a tactical space fighting game. Like you go around conquering planets and stuff and mining resources to improve your ship, but it has a very involved plot and there are all these alien species that you, uh, you can interact with. And um, it does a very interesting thing, which is that about 90% of them have a very clear kind of hat that they're wearing, right? Like this is the proud warrior race guys. These are like the evil aliens. These aliens are totally friendly, but kind of vulnerable. These ones are like very capitalistic and don't care about anything except for trading. Right. And then you run across this one race called, or species called the ores and the ORZ, the ores. And the ores are basically a, an eldritch horror. Um, and one of the interesting things about them as an Eldritch Horror is that you can, in fact, befriend them. They're on your side, but they're clearly incredibly creepy and dangerous, and they present to you as brightly colored parrotfish that are very, very friendly, but your universal translator can't handle it, um, handle their speech. So they will say <laughs> things to you like where they're talking about how um, the best campers are the happy campers uh and campers and happy campers there are in stars like on either side and this is your your translator is trying to deal with this um and it can't and you never really get to find out what these uh what they're going on about and what it is that they've done um although you get hints so this is something where it's taking the fact that it's actually like a fairly primitive game by our standards there's maybe a hundred lines of dialogue all told that you ever get from the oars um and they they make a virtue of that limitation uh, to create something that has stuck with me all this time. And like instantly when I read this email, I was like, oh, I've got to talk about Star Control and you all should go out and play the game. It totally holds up. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
What about you, Matt? Uh, I got I got one to throw out, um, which is a Solaris or, or Solaris. I'm not exactly sure about the pronunciation, but uh, most notably the 2002 uh, uh, Steven Soderbergh film starring George Clooney. But also, I mean, it was a very famous uh, science fiction novel by a, a Polish guy named Stanislaw Lem uh, from the 60s, and. The uh, the 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 book and the movie are about like you know what if we discover life on a foreign planet but it's so alien to us that we just there's no way to communicate and there's no even evidence that it really uh, uh, even knows we're there that the life on this planet is basically like an ocean that is just a, a single living organism that covers the whole surface of the planet and the way they know it's alive is it sort of undulates in these amazing complicated mathematical patterns but you know because it's so large it's a whole planet it, it doesn't even really register our presence as like uh, other intelligences and then you know the, the book and the movie uh, sort of delve into what happens is that the people there start to encounter uh, people that are very significant to them that have died uh, come back to them uh, almost like, you know, as ghosts uh, on the space station circling this planet. Um, and it, But it's completely unclear about what this means in terms of the, what the planet is trying to do. Is it sending us these people to punish us, to torture us? Or is it sending us to them as a, as, as a, a kind gesture? Because it knows that these people are important to us and it thinks it's being nice? Or is it completely uh, unaware that it's even doing this? And the, the movie and the book don't really give any hint as to what this phenomenon is and in the end it 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 it, both of them sort of come to the realization that it's it's you cannot bridge this gap that that this we can recognize that solaris is intelligent we can recognize that it has uh, powers that we can't even begin to comprehend but there's no way to say hi to it and there's no way to begin a dialogue all we can do is sort of stare across this void and and wonder um, and it's a really beautiful movie. I mean, Soderbergh always does interesting work. Um, and this is, it, it's, it's a sort of a sad contemplative movie with a lot of really, uh, really uh, rich images of the space, uh, space station sort of circling this, this glowing planet. Uh, so definitely That's, highly recommend it if you want to see a weird alien movie. So Daniel, that, same, you, that yeah. same thing has been revisited in a couple of other movies that are slightly more accessible. So if you want to sort of ease your way into it, you could start with uh, middle tier uh, Michael Crichton's Sphere, which is a novel, which I think was actually a, a pretty decent novel and was a yeah. very terrible movie. Uh, but about, <laughs> But pretty much about the same idea that, you know, a team of scientists encounter this alien either intelligence or alien device of some sort, and it it affects them in profound mental and existential ways that they have trouble divining the intent behind. And if that's a little too highbrow for you and you want to take it a step lower, uh, there's always Event Horizon, in which, uh, in, which research, <laughs> in which researchers encounter alien intelligence. It just screws with them. It just plays torture games with them and is evil and is bad. And, and, the, and they do divine its intent, and its intent is malice. <laughs> oh, I hated that one so much. Oh, that was my lowest-rated movie on my IMDb movie ratings for a long time. Not that it's that bad. I just had to sit in outside the Grand Union for 45 minutes after I watched it in, like, horror and shock, which I did not find enjoyable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not that bad, but it traumatized me. <laughs> yeah, <it's true. laughs> <laughs> As a student of Latin, it has a pretty stupid plot twist. Uh, but, but I, 
All I know about Latin is Jehovah begins with an I. When we get moving, and I mean, I feel like this could, this will make me feel stupid in front of Stokes, but I got to throw it in there anyway. Uh, which is if you're, because I feel like one of the big things that would be a big gap between us and any sort of alien culture potentially is the way that we use symbols and signification to communicate, right? Like we use a word, we have this idea that the word means something, and then, you know, people have kind of a consensus around what words mean, and that's kind of like, and we use symbols and signals to represent these things. And whatever's out there. Can I say it, Pete? Yeah, sure. Shaka, when the walls fell. <laughs> well, obviously, that should be, that's required reading. That's like overthinking at 101 syllabus is to watch the Darmok episode of Star Trek <laughs> The Next Generation. Write some fan fiction based on those legends. Yeah, but I, what I was going to suggest is like waiting till two in the morning, maybe have a nice adult beverage or two if you're of age, and listen to uh, Grieg's Pier Gint and try to figure out what he means. Because <laughs> I feel like music, I don't think this one specifically, this is the one that's like, da 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 like all that, it's got Hall of Mountain King in it. It has all these classical music sections that I feel like I intuitively understand are talking, quote unquote, about specific things because of like the history that I've had with these musics appearing in in various cartoons and movies and stuff, and to just sort of contemplate that nothing in this piece means anything that you could possibly mm. comprehend or understand. That it, right? is, it is non that, that the music is non-semiotic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like, well, Jordan can probably throw in more than I can on this in terms well, of the official vocabulary. I mean, that's actually it's a very interesting example um, because, yeah, I agree with you that da da ba da 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 basically means that Bugs Bunny is wearing a dress now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but in fact, the pure Gint suite is not uh, non-semiotic because it's program music. Right. So each of those cues is cued to a particular scene in um, Ibsen, right? Ibsen's pure Gint. Um, so there are very specific things that they mean. They just don't mean necessarily what we think they mean. Actually, uh, like uh, sort of a another excellent example of this is um, the Sekulos epitaph, which you know, we can throw the the wiki link for that in the um, in the show notes. Which is the oldest complete piece of music. It's on a, a Greek gravestone from uh, I think it's like a couple of hundred years uh, BC or something like that. Um, and we know more or less what it sounds like, although there's a lot of guesswork there, and we know what the words are. Um, and you listen to it, and you're, you're sort of struck with this gap. And actually, what you, what you find is that most of the people who make performances of it are not responding to anything in the words or anything in the music. They're responding to the fact that now this piece of music is from a, a centuries-old culture that we have lost all contact with. And they're, they're portraying that loss in their performance of the music much more than they're portraying anything in the music itself. So yeah, it is interesting to think about. Yeah. So basically, like any, if we were to actually encounter an alien culture that was fundamentally different from us, the way that we would come to describe it would mostly be, it would be more about us than it would be about them, at least for a long time, until they had their sort of like, uh, what, their like, um, their Richard Wright writing like, like Native Son or whatever, so that we could understand it. No, 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 sure. that's, that's too much of a joke. But, uh, but yeah, actually, but like... You know what fanfic I want to write? I want to write like the angry, uh, like, Navi activist tracked about how like Jake Sully was an imperialist jackass. And 
I think that would be great. Yeah, like totally, like totally. Want to like what? What is the uh, like? What Navi is the new black, which like shows the other side of the story. <laughs> uh, okay, um, what's going on? We have a, we have a bunch of uh, uh, SMS messages, and uh, I haven't. Uh, you know, we haven't featured these before, but it's such an easy way to uh, send us a, a little nugget of feedback. Um, it's uh, 203-285-6401 in addition to leaving a voicemail. And I'm sorry, I can't play any of the voicemails through today because I'm not set up to do that right now. Uh, but I, I will get that set up and, and uh, start going through the voicemails. Um, but we have some SMS messages. Uh, this is a, a uh, SMS message. This this listener um, didn't, didn't leave uh, his or her name, so I'm I'm going to identify them by telephone prefix. It's five one zero three six are the first two numbers <laughs> of the of the of the telephone five one zero three six. And uh, I don't think it's it's prolific uh, prolific texter Robin, uh, formerly of Twitter, uh, because it's a different phone number than than Robin users. But this is uh, just a little observation uh, from the uh, uh, Star Trek Into Darkness episode of this podcast. Star Trek should have uh, ended with Khan going into the cryotube. Uh, I've made a huge mistake. And then, uh, and then, uh, cue music of Simon and Garfunkel uh, singing uh, "The Sound of Silence." Um, that's that's uh, from five one zero three six. I've made a huge mistake. I don't know. How, is guys, guys, is is Arrested Development sticking with you the way that the the first three years have just stuck stuck with us uh, this far? I just want when when Spock and and Khan are fighting on top of this of the flying thing. I just want uh, Spock to go wild card. I cut the brakes, you know, like, <laughs> <just> jump off. <laughs> and that's why you always leave a note. <laughs> well, mine was sure. like, it's always sunny in Philadelphia reference, not yeah, an development reference. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I've heard of that show. All right, uh, let's let's uh, let's talk about little. Uh, let's talk about um, some short messages, little messages, uh, 160 or so character messages from Robin from Twitter. Uh, so uh, Robin says, "I'm listening to the New Year's resolution segment. Interestingly, given some of that conversation, my resolution is to finally finish the legal online media sharing system I've been working on." So uh, Robin, form- formerly Robin from Twitter, who actually secured for us the overthinking it Twitter name because uh, it was a defunct account until we we took it over. Uh, you know, overthinking it was an inside job. Um, the uh, uh, we we are all we are waiting with with bated breath to hear what the uh, what the deal is with um, with the uh, the legal online media sharing service that you are working on. Yeah. Um, so just, uh, just to put that in perspective, like my resolution is to like get a little more exercise, <laughs> <laughs> and like th- this resolution is to what well, well, like revolutionize the way that we share and consume media forever. Legally, um, I, I've had one successful New Year's resolution in my life, and it was in the year two thousand six, and it was not successful uh, in that I broke it on January tenth, two thousand six. But I've kept it since since that time, uh, and it was to stop drinking soda. Uh, I have not had a soda pop since uh, uh, January 10th, 2006. And you will remember I was a fiend for the Dr. Pepper back in the day. What, was, the, was the violation of taboo intentional or was it just like you literally forgot that you'd made this? Because like, I can see like being 10 days after being like, oh, right, all right, right. That's a thing I said I wouldn't do. Right. Yeah, it's, I went to a movie 
and I bought a Mr. Pib at the movie just because I that's what I did at the movies. And I was like my my conscious brain, rational decision making, like monitoring my own actions was completely turned off. Like I walked into the movie theater with the ticket. I stood in line for popcorn and a Mr. Pib. I sat down and I was halfway through sucking down my uh, my medium Mr. Pib before I realized, oh, F, I said I wouldn't do this anymore. So uh, that is my anniversary. That is my I, I call it soda briety. Um, that is my anniversary of, of <laughs> not having not having soda anymore. So so January tenth. That's uh that was my one in my life. That is my one successful New Year's resolution. Uh, more from more from uh, from Robin. Uh, he says. Uh, the only person laughing about the zest, not even once joke. Apparently, that was me. That's a <laughs> <laughs> that's a deep podcast cut. Maybe you re- maybe you remember that. Uh, he also points out Doctor John Doolittle is a double dactyl, uh, and I will I will add on to that uh, um, to what Robin has said. If you have not seen the Game of Thrones uh, double dactyl thread in the Overthinking It forums, uh, accessible at overthinkingit.com slash forums, uh, you have not lived and you have not experienced poetry. <laughs> <laughs> do I have a do, speaking? Of, do I have a quick moment to share some kind of sad? I don't want to get too sad, but some sad news. Yeah, um, John Hollander died. The guy who taught us the double dactyl. Are you kidding? How did I yeah. not know that? It just came out on over the wire, like like not long ago. Oh wow! Uh, I just saw it come up in the New York Times. Yeah, I know he passed no. away. He was he was a po- uh, poetry professor that both Matt and I studied with. I don't know if Blinky, did you ever take a class with him? No, but I, I heard great things. And yeah, uh, and well, and he was not a young man when you know ten years ago when when we were studying he was with 83. him. Eighty three. Yeah, I was uh, in his last class before he retired. Yeah. Oh man. Um, yep. And and was a super. He is one of those professors that like he's been writing since the fifties. And like if your high school teacher ever taught you anything it's because they learned it from somebody who learned it from somebody who learned it from john hollander right 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 uh, and he used to take yeah. so much joy in like the doggerel and comedic verse forms too like teaching the like anna like the was it the um some anna, the anapestic meters of ogden nash and the double dactyl stuff he always got a little bit of he, he was one of the inventors of the double dactyl yeah, right? he and anthony hecht hecht yeah yeah, hecht, yeah uh created the created the double dactyl together yeah. um yeah. Oh God! Yeah, God, sorry, I didn't bring it way, way down. No, but, I mean, sorry, like, I just like we I talked wanna... about him on the podcast before, so people who've been listening to the podcast have heard us reference him. So I just wanted to, you know, more, you know, pour one out. For, oh man, for there, God, there, there has passed a uh, way of glory from the earth. Uh, I'm sorry, just to take that completely out of context. God, here are some commemorative double dactyls in honor of John Hollander. God, Pete, yeah, like mad feels actually. I hate to yeah, say it. Yeah. Um, uh, Higgledy piggledy, school teacher Hollanders, something and something and cavil and curse, uh, casting about for the antepenultimate line to this fiendishly difficult verse. That's <laughs> one of is. the that's one of the self-descriptive oh, <laughs> <laughs> What about now, dog? And run that on rap genius and see what happens. Here's, here's, <laughs> here's the last one. Um Higgledy Piggledy, John Simon Guggenheim, and this is by John Hollander, actually, I should say. That in, in addition to being a, a great scholar of English literature uh, and of poetry, he was a poet himself. Uh Higgledy Piggledy, John Simon Guggenheim honored whatever the muses collect, save in those subjects like mine, which have suffered his unjustifiable, shocking neglect. 
<laughs> wow. Uh, referring, of course, to poetry. Anyway, so yeah. uh, double dactyls. Wow. The, pour one out for John Hollander and visit the, uh, the, um, the uh, higgledy-piggledy Stannis Baratheon uh, <laughs> thread. It is spoilerific. We do talk about events throughout the Song of Ice and Fire, so if you haven't read the books, you might want to stay away. But it is some funny dog roll right there, some funny... <laughs> Light verse. Uh, so, um, uh, more from Robin from Twitter. Listening to the Spirit of Vengeance episode, and that is that is more than a year ago. So, this is how long it's been <laughs> since we did some listener feedback. Uh, listening to the Spirit of Vengeance episode, the format where only one of you has seen the movie you're discussing works really well. You should do that more often. Well, thank oh. you, Robin. That is a that is a that is an opinion it's not universal. Not universally shared across the internet. <laughs> One of my favorite comments on uh, iTunes for the Overthinking It podcast was someone who um, <laughs> someone who objected to our Harry Potter episode because no one had seen the Harry Potter movies. <laughs> and, we just, <laughs> and we just talked about the idea of Harry Potter, several of us not having even read the books at that point. Um, I actually voted it up as a helpful comment because I, I feel like it described very accurately what we did on that episode. And if you weren't into that, you probably wouldn't be into, uh, into our podcast, but thank you, Robin, uh, big up. I don't know. I would say that the, the podcasts where one person has seen the movie is very different from the podcasts where no people have seen the movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the difference between zero and one seems to be greater than one, right? Yes. I think, <laughs> that, yeah, I think we just revolutionized math forever, guys. I think. <laughs> uh, all right. And um, so Robin also says, I was big into the Ghost Rider comic book as a kid. I haven't seen the movies, largely because I can't see how Cage could be a good blaze. Fenzel's convincing me that the movies could be good uh, despite that. Uh, he says, also, also, this was 30 years ago. And these are all individual SMS messages, by the way. This was 30 years <laughs> ago, and I may be misremembering, but as I remember, the comic Ghost Rider... Uh, was about the will and about the puns, the terrible, terrible <laughs> puns. And that's oh, from uh, March so 12th. I've had so many people come up to me and kind of accuse me of leading them astray by, by convincing them to see Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. Because <laughs> they like, listen to that podcast and like, oh, this movie must be great. And then they watched it and hated it. And they're like, like, people came up to me at our fifth anniversary party in New York and were like, you did this to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I stand by it. But it's much more of a crank. It's like a crank sequel more than a faithful to the comics Ghost Rider. As far Wait, as you, mean, you mean like a like a? Oh, crank? oh, good. Also, also a benchmark of quality there. Crank. <laughs> oh, oh, don't get me started. Hold me back. Somebody hold me back. <laughs> yeah, hang on. Thing. Like, <laughs> crank, crank is better at being the movie crank than any other movie is. <laughs> <laughs> um, true. Which which isn't which isn't always tautological. I mean, as I've as I've as I've observed in the past. Uh, the Scorpion King, the original, the original one, the the rock version. The Scorpion King is a better Dungeons and Dragons the movie than Dungeons and Dragons the movie. So sure. yeah, no, that's true. Mind you, Ang Lee's sense and sensibility is a better Dungeons and Dragons the movie than Dungeons and Dragons the movie. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go off on a rant, but like for those of you who play Dungeons and Dragons, you guys know that the Beholder is a fearsome monster. This monster has has magical powers. It's got hit points up the wazoo. In the movie Dungeons and Dragons, they get rid of it by throwing a rock in the opposite direction and then sticking past it while it goes to. Investigate the rock. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
which I guess in their defense is also how they get rid of, uh, uh, you know, in, 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 uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring. They get rid of one of the Nazgul by throwing a rock in the opposite direction. <laughs> That's one day I'm going to have to do like a, like a reel of shame of movies in which like very fearsome, scary, legendary villains are successfully evaded by throwing a rock. <laughs> the, or or the, the capstone of which is Boba Fett being knocked off a sand skimmer by Han Solo whacking him in the head with an oar. Yes. I don't know. In a way, I feel like having the beholder get like uh, get distracted by a rock is a is a very good Dungeons and Dragons thing because like even though it's a beholder, like it can roll a natural one on its uh, on its bluff check or whatever, right? Like it is possible. There's a one in twenty Uh-oh. chance that. Whatever Marlon Wayans, I believe it is, just got really lucky with his twenty-sided dice. Yeah, just, yeah. That like, okay, so throwing one rock that should not have worked, but if he rolls, if he throws twenty rocks, statistically, one of those has got to distract him. <laughs> well, it's also well, the case of like if you're taking a bunch of low-level characters and running them into a beholder. This scenario where the DM comes with up with a sort of clever like rewards a character for a clever in-character way of not dying, not like wiping the party instantly, is probably better than having them like hit it with a sword and having it work, right? Like, you should not <laughs> <I> suppose true. <laughs> And what we're what we're all sort of circling around is one of the it's one of the big limits in uh, I, I guess any sort of faithful adaptation of Dungeons and Dragons into a movie or I suppose of any video game into a movie video games you know deriving quite a lot of their at least in the 21st century deriving a lot of their structure and value from from D and D. Uh, is that D and D and role and a lot of role playing games? Not all of them. I mean, there's a there's a large tradition of you know independent story oriented games that don't go this way. But in D and D, the the success or failure of the protagonist in a scene most often boils down to competence. And in most narrative fiction, especially movies that we view, the success or failure of the protagonist in a scene most often boils down to either will or relationships or something along those lines, which are tougher to model mechanically. So they're not, they're not the sort of thing that, that D&D, for instance, is good at building. And again, there are other games that are better at it. But so if you're, like, if you're coming to the, I guess like if you get someone who's really good at D&D and tell them to make a movie, they have to throw away a lot of what they know about the D&D experience in order to make a good movie. Yeah. It's not like an Independence Day, like the first two hours of the movie are a guy practicing flying an aircraft. And then the <laughs> yes, last movie is exactly. like flying an aircraft at the aliens. <laughs> it's like, I've raised my people enough. Think of how terrible a movie that would be. It's like, first I'm going to kill all these small monsters. Then I'm going to kill this medium-sized monster. And finally, at the end of the movie, in the big action set piece, I'm going to kill this big monster. And, and there's no real characterization between it. That would be terrible. That would be an awful movie. That's rough, roughly similar to Sharknado, I think. Or well, there's a lot of other sharks. They kind of go like that. Although it's not that the shark really bigger. It's there. There are tricks that they use to make this shark seem more dangerous later in the movie, such as putting a lot of them in a tornado. Uh, that makes them seem like they're more dangerous than they would be in the water. Whereas I think the opposite is often the case. Yeah. Are the sharks able to breathe while in the tornado? Uh, I actually watched the last 15 minutes of Sharknado this weekend, and I can yeah. say that the sharks appear to sort of swim, uh, but it's not really clear. Maybe that's just because they're sort of animated in formation. They appear to like maintain a geo- geometric orientation among themselves whilst spiraling in the tornado, so there's like 
ripples and waves of them. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I either it doesn't appear to be raining that hard, so. Um, I, I don't know, actually. I, maybe it's explained in some of the, no doubt, gripping expository sequences early in Sharknado, where the rules of the game are set down. Where they do, I don't know whether that's world building or brand building there. I don't know if there's a theory of Sharknado where all the scenes of Sharknado hypothetically happen in the same universe. But, uh, <laughs> that's, crazy. that's crazy talk, Pete. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, I think that uh, we're, we're going to leave our, our listener feedback uh, extravaganza there. Um, so you can uh, contribute to the listener feedback by uh, emailing podcastedoverthinkingit.com or by texting 203-285-6401. We have voicemails. We haven't played them yet. We're going to get to them, I promise. Uh, as soon as I, I figure out with this new Skype setup that I have how to play the, the audio through, um, hey, you could leave a comment at the show notes if you know how to do that and want to, uh, want to tell me. And you can leave a comment in the show notes anyway. Uh, make sure that you please um, uh, check out the Breaking Bad recaps. If you're watching Breaking Bad, watch them. You can get them as video. You can get them as downloadable audio. Or you can subscribe to the podcast feed through iTunes or through another uh, podcatcher. If you uh, just grab the RSS feed, you'll see that Monday afternoon. Uh, on the site, and hey, um, we are—we've uh, talked about it a little bit. We're sort of in- engaged in a number of of um, initiatives to grow the audience of the Overthinking It podcast. One of them has been asking you to share the podcast with a friend. Uh, I, I haven't made that very easy for you, though. So there are going to be uh, specific. Uh, Twitter and Facebook share buttons on the show notes for this episode. And if you want to uh, share it on your timeline on Facebook, tell people about the Overthinking It uh, podcast. Tell them why you like it. Tell them that they should subscribe. We would really appreciate that. And we uh, you know, uh, want to bring Overthinking to more and more people and get more and more listener feedback to ignore. Uh, it remains only to thank the panel and uh, tell you that we will be back next week. And until then, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately Shatterdome decree, where gypsy danger Jaeger ran to fight the kaiju in the sea. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good.